Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We gather on the land of the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. We're celebrating 25 years of Worldview with a road trip. This week, we've been to Detroit, Dearborn, Flint, and London, Ontario. You can follow the trip at wbez.org slash wvbus. On social media, use the hashtag wvbus. Today, we are in Kalamazoo, Michigan. We're at the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo University. We've got a nice crowd here. With me is Jax Lee Gardner. They are Associate Executive Director of the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership here at Kalamazoo University College. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, tell us a bit about the Social Justice Center here. It's, it's really awesome. It is pretty awesome. I would concur. So uh, we were established in 2011 here at Kalamazoo College through a very generous endowment from the Arcus Foundation. Um, under the leadership of prominent K College alum John Stryker. And so he gave $20 million for a social justice leadership center here at the college so that we could exist in perpetuity. He also gave a generous $5 million towards this beautiful building that we're currently housed in. And this is a Genie Gang facility, Genie Gang, is, the yes, Chicago architect? It is, yes, this is a gang studio building. Yes, it's the um, only uh, design um, uh, the only building in the world that we know of that was designed from its conception to house a social justice leadership center. And so they really tried to reflect the values of the work that we do in the architecture of the building. Uh, the, the New York Times did a review of this, and it had a really good quote. Uh, yeah, I believe, if I recall correctly, the quote was that it looks like something that um, if the Jetsons had ordered a log cabin from a 2062 Whole Earth catalog. Yes. If I remember, which I think pretty much sums it up for folks that haven't seen the building, but it is uh, a very unique space and the work that we're able to do here as a result of our resources and our, our physical location is pretty incredible. And you walk in the door and there's like a coming together monkeys pit, right? Like right there in the, in the bottom, yeah, well, just like the monkeys had. And you can, people can I think that's out. what they were going for. <laughs> that and also they were studying a lot of different um, gathering places. They had looked at Quaker meeting houses and all sorts of different religious kind of gathering spaces around the world to kind of inform some of the architecture within the building. Well, how do you teach social justice leadership? Um, that's a good question. So our mission is to develop and sustain um, human rights and social justice leadership through education and capacity building. And so we're kind of a unique enterprise because we are located within the Kalamazoo College community. So we do serve our students, our faculty, our staff. We have a lot of curricular initiatives and uh, fellowships that are available for the K College community. Um, but we also have a larger role to play in the greater Kalamazoo um, uh, community as well as in Michigan and nationally and internationally. And so we try to really um, think conscientiously about that footprint as well. What does that end up looking like? So we do um, public events and programs, and because our mission is around social justice leadership, we're not confined to any one content area, which allows us to be really responsive in the work that we do. So we do work um, with relationship to racial justice, um, indigenous rights, LGBTQ activism, um, environmental and land activism. Um, we've been able to be very responsive to a lot of the national movements and campaigns in recent years. Um, and have put together biannual international convenings that we call Without Borders, 
Um, and so that's given us an opportunity to kind of bring in a lot of our national and international network of folks to Kalamazoo. Do you feel a special responsibility to the social justice movement? I mean, you've you've got a nice endowment. You are you are not the the scruffy social justice people who are operating from an, in a basement with with no funds. Uh, you've you've got a kind of leverage here. Yeah, we have a really really unique vehicle, and I think that. Um, we are very well resourced. I would say we're still incredibly scrappy. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, you know, especially as compared to other social justice centers that are affiliated with higher education institutions, because we are endowed, um, it does give us the ability to um, have more autonomy with our funding, to focus our efforts. We're not having to do fundraising and grant seeking. Um, but I think with that, um, with those resources comes tremendous responsibility to be in alignment with our values. And I think that the way that we spend our resources is reflective of those values and takes great um, pride in that responsibility. I'm talking with Jax Lee Gardner. She, they are uh, Associate Executive Director of the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College. And I wanted to ask you some about your own uh, research and work on social justice. Uh, you focus on women and children, uh, particularly with relationship to queerness and racial justice. Uh, explain your own angle and what you're doing. Um, sure. So um, my background, I kind of came of age as a social justice activist within the LGBTQ community for about 20 plus years and then became a professional birth doula. And I spent about five and a half years working in the birth, the world of birth work here in southwest Michigan. And I really saw um, anti-racist doula care as a vehicle for like building anti-racist communities. And so actually I, I held a different role here at Kalamazoo College for the first five years that I worked here and um, had the opportunity to receive one of Arcus's staff fellowships. And so they kind of bought back some of my time from my other job and I was able to do my own research, really looking at that, um, that intersection between birth care and anti-racism community work. And from that, actually was able to found a diaper bank for the city of Kalamazoo. Um, and Explain that, what a diaper bank is. Most people probably have never heard of one. Sure, yeah. And there are a lot of misconceptions around diaper need. About one in three families in America struggles to adequately diaper their infant. Um, and uh, you can't use WIC or SNAP um, to pay for diapers or personal hygiene products. And in most communities, there are not safety nets available for diaper need, unlike food insecurity. Um, and so basically a diaper bank works very much in the same vein as a food bank. Um, and so it's a social service. It's very much harm reduction. It's not ameliorating the systemic underpinnings of diaper need, but it does get diapers on babies that need them today. And um, so you founded the St. Luke's Diaper Bank here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I imagine it also, uh, having diapers frees up mom for other things. It's not a, it's a, it, it, it does help. Yeah, Huggies actually did a national survey of diaper need um, a few years back. And most parents reported that they would rather experience food insecurity than diaper insecurity because of the lack of, um, because of the lack of safety net in place. And so, yeah, it really can contribute um, to a, a family who is struggling with financial insecurity, diapers can make up a really significant portion of the budget. Um, what are some of the other projects that other uh, folks here at the center work on? Um, well, you're going to get to hear a little bit more about two of them. Two of our past regional Arcus Regional Fellows are going to be on the show a little bit later on, and I'll let them talk about their work. Um, but we've worked with a variety of folks on everything from... Um, 
infusing the medical, the local medical schools curriculum with anti-bias, anti-racism curricular initiatives. Um, we've had folks that have been working on uh, political education. We've had folks that have been working on movimientos cosechas in the local area. Um, we've been at the table with the folks that built the county ID program here in Kalamazoo, and um, Kalamazoo College faculty and students and staff were instrumental in that. Um, taking down of the Fountain of the Pioneers in Bronson Park, which was... What was the Fountain of the Pioneers? The Fountain of the Pioneers was, uh, and there are other folks that are going to be on the program today that can speak at more length about this, but it was an Art Deco um, uh, in art installation kind of in the heart of downtown Kalamazoo that very had a lot of um, very offensive imagery of a uh, colonizer um, towering over a Native American. Um, and so there was a lot statue of... Statue controversies are everywhere. We were just in yes. Flint. We did their segregationist mayor who has a statue mm -hmm. outside of City Hall. Um, you know, Chicago has its own. Yeah, and I'm from the South, and so that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely very familiar with the statue controversy. And so ultimately they, um, the city council voted for its removal, and it has been um, removed from the site, and they've actually um, done a really nice job with redoing the park. Well, Jax, thanks very much for having us and setting us up here. We're really looking forward to the rest of the show, and thanks for everything. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Jax Lee Gardner, they are Associate Executive Director of the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College. We are live at Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And after the break, we are going to talk with Native American leaders from Kalamazoo. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road this week celebrating 25 years of Worldview. You can follow the trip at wbez.org slash wvbus or on social media use the hashtag wvbus. I'm at the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College, and it's great to be here. No matter where you are in the world, when you talk about the interests of indigenous people, you get right to the heart of a lot of social justice issues. And with us is Julie Dye. She is vice chair of the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi Nation. She was a 2017-18 regional fellow at the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership. Thank you for joining me, Julie Dye. Thank you for having us. Also with me is Phyllis Davis, and she is a tribal councilwoman for the Gun Lake Tribe of the Potawatomi Nation. Great to meet you, Phyllis. Bonjour. I, at the beginning, I did a land acknowledgement and uh, talked about the Ojibwe and the Odawa and the Potawatomi. Um, can you give us a little framework on the Native American uh, in, in, that are in Michigan here? Well, the uh, three nations you mentioned are uh, established within the Great Lakes region, and I would say the Potawatomi, which is Potawatomi, uh, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, 
um, they have resided in the Great Lakes regions for thousands of years and our migration path down the St. Lawrence Seaway for the um, uh, Woodland Indians um, my, me migrated through here. So for the Potawatomi or Potawatomi people, uh, southwestern Michigan, Chicago area, um, Ohio, Canada, those centralized areas up north towards Muskegon, um, northern Michigan were territorially our, our homelands. And so, um, like I say for myself, I would acknowledge the Potawatomi first. But thought that Three Fires Confederacy uh, pre predominantly the the three tribes that resided in the Great Lakes area um, had specific roles as interrelated groups and uh, Potawatomi were were keepers of the fire and that meant that those traditions and ceremonies um, with the ceremonial fire um, those things occurred and then your Odawa people were were essentially our traders and the Ojibwe people um, kept the the medicine and the the teachings alive, and they brought them to the people. So we were all interrelated as the Anishinaabek in this area. I, now I note that Kalamazoo has done something interesting here in the last month or so. They um, outlined an area that was designated for Native Americans uh, in the early 1800s. Uh, but was taken away as all the land was taken away. But can you, uh, what do you think of the project and um, how, well, do you, how do you feel about that? Well, the project actually um, is the historical territory that was um, designated as the Machibanashuish Band of Potawatomi Indians, and it was the initial reservation that the federal government had designated for Machibanashuish, or also known as the Gun Lake Tribe, of which I'm a member. Um, this three square mile area of Kalamazoo was our territory. And, and as I said, um, the Natawasepi, the um, Machibanashuish, and Pokagan Band, you know, we flourished and we lived in these areas, but that specific region, downtown Kalamazoo, was designated as, as our territory. And that was part of the removal process during the Andrew Jackson and the removal. Um, era for um, bringing in settlers into West uh, into Michigan um, before they became a state and relocating or the initiation of the removal process for indigenous people for the Potawatomi the Odawa and the Ojibwe people of the Great Lakes area and our tribes were forcibly removed to um, Kansas and Oklahoma um, and many of them perished on the way, and Pokagans have a story that they can tell of that, the Nottawasepi and the Huron, um, we were rounded up and we were forcibly removed, um, and many came back, but many did perish. And so the ongoing um, negotiation and, and treaty discussions occurred between the Machibanashuish and the federal government, and we renegotiated a different place to be our homeland because there were settlers coming into this area. So we ended up migrating north of um, Kalamazoo into Prairieville, uh, Prairie Ronde, and then into the Bradley area as our, as our homeland then. I'm talking with Phyllis Davis. She is tribal councilwoman for the Gun Lake tribe of the Potawatomi Nation. Um, and just to be clear, there's still controversies today about land. I was reading about the Odawa and in the Traverse uh, Bay area. They have a 
uh, lawsuit that, that they're going to contest for a uh, big chunk of land up there, and these things are still alive. Yeah, they are, and prob probably, um, you know, misunderstandings about tribes and their ability to negotiate um, and designate territory, um, you know, is um, it's reclaiming who we are. And it's about, um, for many people that don't understand the removal process and the termination process, this kind of had a tri trickle down in a historical, there's, they call it historical trauma of being removed from your homelands. Um, and when those things occurred, you lost your way of life and life along the Kalamazoo River as we knew it, um, sustainability to hunt um, and gather for those things that you needed for ceremony like uh, like our fish, the nume, um, or the manoma and wild rice. Um, you know, we didn't have those things available to us when we were moved into a semi-plains area in Oklahoma and Kansas. And, and so there's loss of cultural identity and language um, ceremony. So these things are all tied in. The Anishinaabe believe that, you know, our, our blood memory of who we are is tied to the land. And so for tribes who, who take those steps and go forward into determining where they choose their homeland territories to be um, is an ongoing issue. Um, and it's, it's important uh, for tribes to, to reclaim that history. And, uh, you know, I just happened to be in the Apostle Islands recently, and I was out on Madeline Island where they have uh, all the street signs are in Ojibwe now. Well, the, I, I texted a friend, uh, uh, you know, a swimming sign of, like, no swimming here, and it's, got, uh, it's in Ojibwe, and uh, they're, um, they're kind of going through the same process up there. Revitalization of language is, is a priority for many tribes. Um, for the Potawatomi Nations, they, um, we've been very um, fortunate to have the ability to apply for grant, uh, grants that will support um, new teachers and new people to learn. The, the number of um, fluent speakers is dwindling down, in, and I could say probably less than 20 within the eight Potawatomi Nations. Um, and so the re revitalization of that language means that our young, you know, my grandkids and my great-grandkids are going to know who they are. They're going to know how to count. They're going to know how to say their name. They're going to know those ceremonies and songs. And so those things are, are a priority to the existence and future of our nations. I want to talk about another uh, contemporary issue that's uh, happening here in Michigan. And Julie Dyes here, she is vice chair of the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi Nation. And I know you've been involved uh, with a democratic caucus, forming a democratic caucus for Native Americans in Michigan. Um, how, how, do you, how do you sell that to people? I mean, I, with all the skepticism, I mean, everybody in the United States seems to have a lot of skepticism about working with government. Uh, you probably have a little more. It's, it's way. How do you, how do you get together and say, yeah, we're going to really engage and be a part of the process? Mm -hmm. Well, just one slight correction. I'm the vice chair of my nation's elders council. Oh, okay. The tribal council is our governing body, but the elders council is also very active. Uh, traditionally, native people have not been real involved in the political process. 
But what we find is laws are enacted, policies are put in place, and decisions are made about us without us. And we really need to start controlling the narrative uh, and, and, and controlling um, these decisions that are made that impact all Native people of Michigan. What are, what are some of the key things that you want to attack here? Okay, one of our main focuses is education. Uh, any Native person will tell you in Michigan that if many times people will say, well, you're the, you're the only Indian I've ever met, or we thought you were extinct or all wiped out or removed, and, and that's not the case. We have 12 federally recognized tribes here in Michigan, and we, we're here. We still exist. We've always been here on this land beneath your feet, and uh, we need to have a say. Now, um, the issues that you're concerned about, um, what kind of uh, topics do you want to bring into the caucus and and emphasize there? Okay. Like I said, education is a big one. Uh, Letting people know about treaty rights, uh, our concerns for the environment. Line 5 up north is a big concern. All the waterways inland, uh, the Great Lakes, and the water underground as well. I know you've done a lot of work on mascots in Michigan in general, and I was surprised to read that 52 of Michigan's primary and secondary educational institutions still utilize race-based sports team names. Um, And you still want to get involved in politics after banging your head up against the the mascots issue for for a while. I am a member of the Michigan Coalition Against Racism in Sports and Media, and we do talk to a lot of uh, educators, and um, it was one of our foc- my focus as a K College Arcus Fellow. Um, so it is a problem. Uh, our people have been tokenized and misrepresented, um, stereotyped, and uh, simply because people like the romanticized version that they see on in western movies and uh typ- typically they lump us all into one uh look one image as a plains uh person from the 1800s and uh with that with not even recognizing that we're still here today and that we're active and we have things to say that we're, we're not dead or we're not relics what do high schools say to you when you approach them and say you know when we might you change this? Well, there's a, at, at first they'll listen, but then there's resistance because they consider this their heritage, uh, and they always say, "Well, we're honoring you by doing this," which is not uh, the honor is not really felt, and uh, you can't really bestow honor on somebody unless they accept it, and, and, and a lot of derogatory things occur in the name of team spirit, and kids do a lot of. Uh, perform a lot of antics and things that are hurtful. Uh, is there any, uh, do you get, do you see incremental changes when you do this? Or uh, do people ever just say, you know what, you're right, hey, let's, let's nix this? Well, it depends on how progressive the school is. Uh, a lot of the urban area schools um, and suburban schools are more progressive, they're more diverse, and so they have a, um, typically are more progressive and, and understand and we'll listen. The more rural uh, and isolated the communities are, people are embedded, and they don't move in and out of those communities very much, and they feel ownership over our images, our identity, and our culture, and uh, they really don't want to let that go. 
Yeah, I mean, I was surprised when I read 52, or kind of sticking to their guns here in Michigan. Um, was there one that was really successful for you that you could tell people about? Um, a couple of years ago, uh, Belding, Michigan High School was, was the Belding Redskins. And uh, we did go up and talk to the administrators, and they were very receptive, and they created a task force within the high school. The task force did research, and we talked to them and told them, you know, our side and, and how it was really hurtful and, and they shouldn't they should change their mascot. They went back and uh, talked to the other high school kids and created a larger task force, and they came up with a decision and made a recommendation to the school board to change. That's terrific. And but did, did they change their name entirely? Yes. Yes, so the Black Knights, Belding Black Knights now. Yeah. Now... Uh, <laughs> Did you ever have any, I mean, growing up here, did you, do you remember having personal experiences with this? Oh, yes. I, I, I grew up in a, a small farming community, but the two schools on either side of me were uh, both mascot schools. And um, we scrimmaged and played tournaments and that with, I was an athlete in school and a marching band member, and we had a lot of interaction with, with other kids that did, you know, war hoops and painted their faces red and and um, did mock um, dancing and mock teepees and that in the, you know, in halftime. And it was pretty offensive and hurtful as a kid, when, especially if you're trying to reclaim your heritage and your culture and your language, yeah. and then you see somebody mocking it. It's, it's, uh, it's bad. Um, Phyllis, do you want to weigh in on this? Uh, you've been nodding approvingly. Well, I just think her last comment about... Um, behavior that's exhibited by our young people um, can be hurtful to their, you know, their schoolmates. And um, sometimes it makes them not want to identify with who they are. It makes them feel shame about the color of their skin um, and maybe where they live or grew up or what their grandma or grandpa looks like or if their grandma and grandpa can speak the language. You know, they have a tendency, uh, from my experience, to ignore that and to walk away from that. So it kind of makes this whole piece of historical trauma even um, more pronounced um, for, for those younger people. And I've experienced the, the, many of the same things in, in my youth. Uh, how, how far would you say we've come on this? I mean, we seem to have come somewhere, and... Um, but it did, but with so many out there still, it, it just seems it seems like such a long process. It seems to be taking generations to right. really get it done. It's a very slow process, and that's uh, due to the fact that people have not been educated about our people. They they don't really know who we are, what, and that we're here, and anything about our cultures. They all they know is what they've you know learned very little in in school. Um, before we go, I wanted, did want to talk about environmental issues. Um, Phyllis, I know you've been uh, working on environmental issues for some time. Uh, can you outline uh, what you've been doing? I know there's been things around the Kalamazoo River where there was a gigantic oil spill. Um, can you give us an idea? Yeah, um, many years back. Well, um, I know the Kalamazoo residents remember this yes. was the Kalamazoo oil spill, and it was the largest oil spill within a water system in um, the country, in the Great Lakes region for sure. Um, the Huron Band Potawatomi, Nottawasepi Band Potawatomi, were the primary point of contact. The spill occurred uh, close to um, property that they 
held um, and through the mitigation process, the uh, consultation process, tribes have the unique position of being, um, you know, keepers um, and have a, a authority over the land that they put into trust that they take in as their own historical territory. And they have opportunities through um, federal uh, and tribal consultation with EPA, um, with the DNR, the Fish and Wildlife, um, DEQ, any federal agency, tribes can weigh in. And so collectively, this happened, and, and our tribe partnered with Huron Band and these other federal agencies, and there was a work plan um, that was developed. There was an ongoing process for the mitigation and what um, what they, the end run is, is how they were going to look at the long-term effects of the river and reintroducing fish and wildlife uh, and the resurgence and the regrowth of of the um, of foods and fish and wildlife for future. So it was a long process, but um, you know the work that the Huron Potawatomi did um, was substantial, and we were very um, proud to be partners with them. And that's one of those issues that tribal nations will come together on throughout the Great Lakes region and across the country. Our environmental issues, you know the connection that we have to Mother Earth is that blood memory. And you could ask any American Indian or Alaska Native across the country, and they would tell you the same thing. So um, line five, we've been actively evolved. Every tribe has. Um, they, they're able to intervene in, in other ways that, you know, many, many people can't. And line five is the pipeline that's in the Straits right. of mm -hmm. uh, Mackinac. Right. And there's an effort to shut it down, right. and there's a lot of negotiations about that ongoing. Continuing, and they just actually had a consultation on that with the governor's office um, not quite two weeks ago, I believe, and and all of the tribes I know submitted um, their formal um, opinion on, on what to do with Line 5. The tribes also are actively, they've been involved in the Dakota Access Pipeline and provided... Um, we provided monetary resources to um, the tribes out there to assist with legal legal fees and and um, supported them in in many ways. So, you know, the threat is real to the environment when you have uh, um, antiquated, outdated um, pipeline systems that you know are are ready to uh, disintegrate and create um, you know decimation to to environmental places that we really need. We need them. We need them. Absolutely. And I think it's been an inspiration to people uh, across the world. Mm -hmm. And thanks very much for joining us, Phyllis Davis. She is a tribal councilwoman for the Gun Lake Tribe of the Potawatomi Nation. And Julie Dye is vice chair of the Pokagon, or she is uh, elders council vice chair of the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi Nation. She was a 2017-18 Regional Fellow here at the Argus, Argus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College. Thank you both for joining me and talking about your issues. You want to say one more thing, Phyllis? I do. I have one comment that I wanted to read, um, and this is in accordance with traditional belief. Water represents the sacred connection we have with all life. Nibish water literally, literally means the substance that supports our life, our path on Mother Earth. It is water that opens the doorway 
of life. The Great Lake Basin holds a vast history of honoring the resources that were bestowed upon her people. Bamadzwin Yawen is water's life. Miigwech. We're on the road this week. I'm in Kalamazoo, 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 Michigan at Kalamazoo College. And after the break, we'll hear about some of the lessons learned from Kalamazoo's free college tuition program. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For Worldview's 25th anniversary, we've taken the show on the road. We're at the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership on the campus of Kalamazoo Zoo College. You can follow the trip at wbez.org slash wvbus. On social media, use hashtag wvbus. Lots of Democratic candidates want some form of free college education. People in Kalamazoo already have that. In 2005, anonymous donors created the Kalamazoo Promise. Students who go through Kalamazoo public schools get free tuition to any Michigan public university. One of the key intentions of the Kalamazoo Promise was to boost economic development in Kalamazoo. The Kalamazoo Promise is monitored closely, and it's produced interesting data on the impact higher education can have on a community with significant poverty rates. Von Washington, Jr. is the Executive Director of Community Relations for the Kalamazoo Promise and is here with me. Nice to meet you, Von. Thanks for coming. Nice meeting you. Thanks for being Kalamazoo. And Kalamazoo is also addressing alleviating poverty as part of its Imagine Kalamazoo Master Plan. Local leaders have a Shared Prosperity Kalamazoo initiative that aligns with that. And Rebecca Kick is Director of Community Planning and Economic Development for Kalamazoo. And Rebecca was a regional fellow here at the Arca Center. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. (laughs) You know, I wanted to start off with this college education as a tool for economic development idea. And... um, what were the what were the people the donors who started the the Kalamazoo Promise? They what were the goals of the plan? What did they want to see happen in the city? Well, that's really interesting because 13 years ago now the Kalamazoo Promise was announced by then Superintendent Dr. Janice Brown at a school board meeting, and basically in November they said in June they'd start giving out college scholarships to those who graduated from the Kalamazoo Public Schools. That was basically it. That was the announcement, and we really almost look at it as those donors who remain anonymous to this day, kind of went to the park that was mentioned before, Bronson Park, set it down, walked away from it, and said, let's see what a community does with this. Economic development is one of the things that people came out with and said yes and believed that might be it. Investment in people, investment in the public schools, any number of things could be said to what might have gone on behind those closed doors, but it's extremely interesting, and I, th- I think it's probably going to be one of the greatest social experiments, if you will, that maybe we'll ever see. Now, one of the th- good, really good things that seems to have happened is uh, enrollment in the public schools is way up. That's, that's a win. Absolutely, immediately. So the five years prior to the announcement of the Kalamazoo Promise, the school system had lost about $15 million in foundation grants, those dollars that follow students as they go to public schools. In one announcement, 1,000 students were back on the rolls that year, and now 24% percent 
school growth and district growth over that time when most districts in the state are having declining enrollment. Now, um, how does it translate to broader economic development? Is there a um, thing you can measure? Because the schools, it seems you know, so easy to say that's a win, but um, more broadly, how do you digest that? You, you really can't measure it completely. And the WF John Institute, who has been a partner with the Promise Program ever since it started, does have some numbers and figures surrounding individuals and their ability to have earnings based upon how they do um, using the scholarship. And, and those numbers are available to anyone. But for us, we evidence it by just, if you were to walk around Kalamazoo right now, as opposed to what it looked like 10 to 13 years ago, you would see all of the developments. A lot of progress is considered in cities by cranes in the air, and we have three cranes in the air building buildings um, and having the first buildings built within 10 years of, um, of the last structure. So there are a number of things. If you talk to people in the real estate business, they will tell you business is booming and houses are being sold quickly and that um, people are trying to find places and that the market is tight. So there are a number of things that evidence that people are moving in to avail themselves of the scholarship. Now, I was reading some of the statistics, and it said that white Kalamazoo grads are completing degrees and certifications at a rate of about 50%, but the rate for African-American and Latinos is about 15%. That's got to be a disappointment in some ways, but I don't know what it's measured against more broadly against the general population. That just feels like a disappointment, though, when you read that. Having been in education, and I could see how someone seeing those numbers goes, oh, man, we, we, thought, we thought it might be better. But you have to kind of look at, one, where was the baseline when we started? And two, anyone imagining that a college scholarship provided to a student that was facing extreme life challenges the day before they graduated, that the scholarship somehow was going to erase those life challenges, is just not, it's not even conceivable. If I'm someone that was living in poverty yesterday, graduated today, I'm in poverty tomorrow and face those same challenges. So when we look at the numbers, it just helps us expose the gaps that we need to work on in our community. And we face many of the same challenges, scholarship or not, that the majority of communities, urban communities in the country face. Now, the Kalamazoo Promise has done some things to help up the numbers. You have, Calum you have coaches from the Kalamazoo Promise at the, the colleges where most of the students go now, which are the community college here in Western Michigan University. Um, so there's ways you, you're kind of uh, looking at juicing those numbers. Oh, absolutely. So for the first eight years of the scholarship, we really looked at it as we want to get the scholarship out. When students get to the college, or and or if they're going for a certificate, a certification, they're able to get there, have the money that follows them so they can be successful. But after we look at the numbers, we said, yeah, we, we want to have a little more of an impact in the work that's being done in the community. So we do have Promise Pathway coaches, so former Promise students that have used the scholarship, gone to college, now work back in the public schools. And they're working with students, helping them find the things that they need. We rebranded this year, and we went with your path, your promise. We know every student is not destined for college right away. That may not be their path. So uh, apprenticeships, going in for skills and certifications, those types of things are things that we support wholeheartedly. You can imagine for the first 10 to 12 years, people thought it was a, you know, a bachelor's degree or bust. But there are many paths that a student will take. And so the Pathway Coaches are help students understand, investigate that, and look at it early on in their high school career. Uh, have you, now it's interesting because we're at a point now where you, you're the kindergartners who were uh, there when the Kalamazoo Promise started are now the kids who are coming out of college. Uh, well, tell me a story about somebody. 
Well, that's been huge. When the promise was announced, the graduation um, numbers were about 450 students. They're well over 700 now over the last two classes of graduates. So we know that number is growing. And yes, it is huge that this has been promised in perpetuity. So for anyone that's out there, we have lots of promised partners across the country that are putting scholarships together. The opportunity and the generosity here is why it can be done. These donors have made sure that this experiment, if you will, will continue and go on and really see the life of what it needs to to be successful. But those students had that coming up their entire time. Those families that were here had that promise the entire time. That changes how you invest. That changes where you can put resources in your family. And that changes really the trajectory of what you might do when you come out of, of high school. I did see a quote from um, Michael Rice from the Kalamazoo Public Schools, and he said that Kalamazoo Promise has been a wonderful force, but that's not enough. It simply hasn't changed the socioeconomic numbers in our community. Um, it's, you're, you're still drawing from deep pockets of poverty. Seventy percent of uh, the students at the public schools qualify for free or reduced-price lunch. That's that's a uh, that's a serious thing. It really is. And so many communities that get excited about having the scholarship need to understand those challenges are still going to exist. But we want to leverage this opportunity. I mean, to date, over $125 million has been paid in tuition and mandatory fees for these students. That's a great deal of something that we can leverage to come back. And my job each and every day is to leverage the other community assets. You know, no fair. Someone's given $125 million, but kids are in school and their teeth are falling out of their head because they don't have dental care. So we go to the dental community and talk to them about what they can do. And the Family Health Center and the Community Foundation and Communities and Schools has come together to help provide those free dental services for students. And that's just one of many things that has started and is taking place in Kalamazoo as people want to make sure that these students have the fundamental ability to use the scholarship. I'm talking with Von Washington, Jr., Executive Director of Community Relations for the Kalamazoo Promise, the free tuition program for Kalamazoo residents who go to the public schools here. And I want to broaden out uh, the things, then talk about the leverage and the things the community is doing more broadly with Rebecca Kick. She's Director of Community Planning and Economic Development for Kalamazoo. And um, you did a, 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 do you want to speak to how the, the, just the promise kind of focused minds around here? When it was announced all those years ago, uh, did, did it do something to the idea of uh, economic development uh, around here? Sure. So I think one of the things that we thought was going to happen almost immediately was, you know, super housing shortage was going to be created in the city of Kalamazoo because everybody was going to be rushing here to build houses, to move into our apartments that were empty. And that didn't necessarily happen. Um, because the school system can also be in the township, and we've got these surrounding townships. That's also Kalamazoo Public Schools. So the city itself did not see this burst or this influx of people wanting to uh, build houses and to, and to take this land on. And so that started some more conversations about why. Um, what is it about a particular school, an elementary school that's in a neighborhood, or what is it about a neighborhood that isn't going to draw somebody there? Um, and through a process that we did, in two, we started in 2015 called Imagine Kalamazoo to update our master plan. 
we took a, a pretty different approach to how we were going to talk to the community um, based on uh, what we wanted to find out. I mean, when you hear about a master plan, you think, well, that is a top-down thing. Right. But you tried to do it differently. We did something very differently. So, one, we did not hold these town hall meetings like, please come and put a sticker on a map and tell us what you like or don't like, which is very, very traditional for a master plan. Instead, we started going to people going to neighborhood meetings that were already happening, going to events that were already occurring. And we talked to people about whatever they wanted to talk about. You know, master plan conjures images of, you know, land use, transportation, housing, and you're kind of like, those are your buckets. Now, we talked about early childhood education. We talked about access to um, universal child care. We talked about um, how do we get better paying jobs into the city. And that was what people were telling us. That's what's going to attract us to the city. We want to take advantage of the promise. But if I can buy this house in the township and have uh, all the things, why am I going to move into a neighborhood, into the city, and try to um, be scrappy when I, you know, it doesn't have a good bus route, or it's just got too many barriers? So we said, okay, well, let's let's get these barriers down. Let's figure out what they are. And I have done a lot of research, so you know, this national program, so they can uh, send me some emails, but. We read hundreds of master plans throughout the city, and we thought, gosh, how do you put equity and inclusion and shared prosperity into a master plan? What does that look like? Like, you know, you think you're not inventing the wheel, but we did. We, we put uh, a strength in diversity. We put shared prosperity as tenants of what's going to happen with land use, of what's going to happen with transportation, of what's going to happen um, when we start to make decisions about city budgets and how we use those resources, it must be tied to this idea of opportunity for all. What does that look like when a developer walks up and knocks on the door and says, hey, Rebecca, I want to do a thing. Um, what kind of what bonuses are you going to give me? What kind of deals? Right. So first, um, with my ARCA Center for Social Justice Leadership, fellowship, I studied the idea of an incentives policy as well as what we call a community benefits agreement. And so developers who come to Kalamazoo, they must look at our strategic vision, which has 10 goals to it, which includes shared prosperity and economic vitality for all. And so when you want land grants, um, loans, and uh, tax abatements from the city of Kalamazoo, we have an ask as well. And so the more boxes you start to tick on all of the strategic vision priorities of the community, the more we can begin to balance and, and help out. We want developers who are invested in our community. I don't want a fly-by-night kind of uh, operation that says, yeah, great, well, I'll, I'll come and I'll invest, and you're going to give me 20 years of tax breaks, and yeah, I'm thinking this person is going to leave in 20 years. It's going to be yeah. the community that invests in the community. Right. And, and so I mean, we were just in okay. Flint and Detroit and, mm -hmm. and seeing how residents themselves were going to build the affordable housing and, and do the things 
Um, so that's kind of the key translation yes, there. Absolutely. And that's what we want to do. We want to empower our residents, our community to do the development. And uh, but what does that look like in, in a city planning kind of thing? So the, the first thing I had to do was get a lot of professional development for my staff. Um, it was about looking inside so that we could respond to the outside because um, government is very good at working with people who have a lot of money and who can write checks to their lawyers. And so I needed to be sure that my staff was ready to do the good hand-holding and build relationships and trust with the community that we're in. Well, um, that sounds like a terrific program and a terrific way to do business. I hope it spreads. Do you think this is the cutting edge of this kind of uh, economic development work? I sure hope so. I hope that Kalamazoo is becoming a model for the, for the rest of the country to follow towards an equitable economy. Rebecca Kick is uh, the Director of Community Planning and Economic Development for Kalamazoo, Michigan, and uh, she's a regional fellow here at the Arcus Center. We are at the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership, and thanks also to Von Washington, Jr. He is the Executive Director of Community Relations for the Kalamazoo Promise. Thank you both for joining us, and thanks for uh, telling us about the great example that Kalamazoo is setting out there. Thank you. Thank you. Monday on Worldview, we go to Toronto, Canada, and I'll talk with Jesse Brown from the Canada Land podcast about the surprising number and reach of Canada's far-right YouTube stars. A big thanks to the nice people who hosted us here at the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College. Lisa Brox, Jax Lee Gardner, and Alexander Teal keep up the great work here at the Arcus Center. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to production assistants Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine. Our technical director is J. Kyle White Sullivan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Yeah.